So we, again, did like a creative exercise with those same you know designers, uh, the creatives that we'd hired to help us come up with the brand. They were also helping us design the packaging and we went through just several iterations. One of the key breakthroughs was we came up with our logo, our mark is another term that people you know call it, what our logo is, our shirt cockers. So if you're not familiar with what a shirt cocker is. It's I am not. somebody who's wearing shirt but no pants. <laughs> okay, that's straightforward. <laughs> the Donald Duck. Yeah. Ooh. All right, passengers, attention. Uh, PM9 is going to have more business in the area. Working on the Welcome to Deeper Dish. Welcome to Deeper Dish. This episode is is really special to me. I have my friend Tim Swindle on to talk about entrepreneurship. But instead of me giving the, the intro to Tim and all of his entrepreneurship exploits and starting a company up from scratch, I'm going to read to you an intro done by a mutual friend of ours. Akin, or Akin Wume, Akin Dande, Akilawan. Futurist, entrepreneur, ill b-boy, breakdancer, brunch impresario, the Elon Musk of card games, fearless in the face of quixotic pursuits, wearer of oversized PJ bottoms, Mr. Tim Swindle. So let's jump into this entrepreneurship thing. So where I'm going to start is you created this game, Utter Nonsense. Maybe, I don't know, two years ago, I was, I was at like, uh, I don't know if it was Target. I was at Target, and I had seen your Kickstarter. And, you know, it, it got circulated through, like, the fraternity. Everybody's circulated around. It was like, oh, that's interesting. I think I saw, what, did I see McGrath in there? So I saw, <laughs> saw people we went to college <laughs> with, and I was like, oh, that's, you know, that, that's pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, it started to pick up momentum, you know, and, and then I went into Target. And I, told, I told my wife, I'm like, I know the I know the guy, like one of the people that created that. One of the things I want to get into is like, where did that come from? Because I read that it was something that you and your family did, like on holidays or when you all got together. Is mm-hmm. that where it came from? Or you know, utter nonsense as it exists today. I started out in a in a different form where we had been playing basically a, a version of this, literally, you know, for ten years since we graduated college at lake houses and family gatherings and whatnot. And people would basically like write down a piece of paper and put things into a hat. And the concept was similar, as you can see, that you know turned into utter nonsense. Mm-hmm. One day we were sitting at a bar on the north side of Chicago. We were up in uh, Lakeview at the schoolyard. And I was sitting there with my buddy, Dave, and it was uh, January 1st of 2014. And we had played a party game the night before, Cards Against Humanity, which mm-hmm. most people I think are familiar with have played. And uh, we were like, you know what? That's a lot of fun. Wish we could do something like that. And it kind of hit us like a lead balloon that, you know, we've been playing this other game at family gatherings for a long time. And I think, you know, we could probably take that and productize it and go to market with it. So we kind of set out from that day forward. So you were at a bar and you literally, did you, did you say productize at the bar? Maybe not as eloquently, you know, especially <laughs> okay. three beers into it the day yeah. after uh, New Year, <laughs> on New Year's Day. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But definitely felt like, yeah, I think we could build mm-hmm. a business yeah. out, out of this or at right. least attempt to, right? We set out from that day forward and just started from square one, Googling how to create yeah. a card game. <laughs> how to create a card game. <laughs> <laughs> and how long from bar to prototype? So the first thing was we had to kind of come up with like a brand. You know, we were trying to figure out what do we call this. Uh, that in itself was a really cool story. So I'm really, really big foodie. I 
love going, you know, to different places and the more unique, the better, not necessarily like the most expensive or the most well-known, but Mm -hmm. like underground supper clubs and things like that is like totally my thing. So there's a place that I've been going to for a long time, which is an underground supper club. And every time you go, they have these really unique menus. The menus change on like a monthly basis. It's Italian for for that dinner. They might like do it on like a spaghetti can, like a tomato sauce can, they'll print it on it. All kinds of like insanely creative, you know, menus that they were creating. I asked the people that run them, like, who, you know, who is it that does these? This is amazing. And uh, I got to know them a little bit. You know, we were looking for somebody to help us build the brand and create this game. I was like, I don't really know anybody else that's this creative, but I knew of these people. And so I reached out to them and they had never done a game before, but they said, sure, we'll give it a shot. So that was essentially your art director from then on out. Yep. So they helped us develop the logo, the box, the name, actually. We did like a big naming exercise, you know, hmm. so it was- What exactly entails an exercise? You go through a creative process and come up with different ideas and concepts and things like that. And then you throw them out to each other and it's like, is that working? Then you go back and think about it. And there's a lot of Google searching. I'd say like throughout the process of creating this game, I mean, I went down the wormhole of the internet. I mean, to the depths that I didn't know existed, just you know, <laughs> looking up different different words and things right, like right, that. Right. So, okay, you do this exercise. You landed on utter nonsense. Landed on utter nonsense. What was the worst name? What was a name that made it through, but then after a while, you're like, that was dumb. That's another good lesson we learned. (laughs) (laughs) We initially called it the accent game. We were like, brilliant. We've got it. That's it. Stop digging. You've hit oil. Just simple, straight to the point. (laughs) You know 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 what you're getting when you get the accent game. Right. So that's where the next step comes in of trying to trademark it and make sure that you're protecting the brand. Had to enlist an IP attorney and tell him the name. And he's like, Nope, that's not going to fly. That's not going to work. <laughs> no. He's like, I do the legal stuff, but I know that I wouldn't do that <laughs> But from a legal perspective, we couldn't trademark that because it wasn't significant enough to trademark. So we had to go back to the drawing board and ultimately landed on utter nonsense. Actually, for anyone who's listening that is not familiar with the game, explain the game. Sure. The way the game works is that you have two sets of cards. You have accents and phrases. So an accent could be something like Valley Girl... British, redneck, orgasm is an accent. And then you have a series of phrases in your hand. And the phrases are just kind of like witty, inappropriate, fun things to say. So the way the gameplay works is that, you know, let's say we're sitting around with four people. One person starts as the judge, the nonsense judge. The way you pick that person is who has the worst breath at the table. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So you get personal right from the start. Yeah, exactly. So then you have a series of these phrases in your hand and you'll flip over a card and let's say, you know, pirate is the accent. Each person that's not the judge has to pick one of the phrases, one of the seven phrases that they can choose from in their hand. And they say, for whatever reason, they want to pick, you know, that phrase that they're going to attempt to say in a pirate accent. They go around the horn and the judge picks their favorite. That's it. And their favorite can be totally subjective. It could be like they either crushed it, they didn't crush it, like they bombed, it was the funniest, whatever. Remind them of something someone said. The magic of it is that it's not meant to like be serious. It's a party game. It's a party game. You're supposed to be drinking and laughing. I was about to say, the more you drink and it sounds like the more incredible and loose it would be getting. That's the thing too, is like we've seen, you know, the most uh, subdued of folks, three or four drinks in, they're standing on the table and becoming these like <laughs> improv all-stars. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm horrible at accents. I'm not even going to lie. You know, every, everybody says that. and Every time I try to do an accent, it turns into Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> it just goes like Austrian who's lived in California. California. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. So as you're going through this process, right, the first thing that comes to mind for me is when you're trying to invest in something that's like raising money. Mm-hmm. You can either go external, you can hit up family and friends, you can bootstrap yourself. What route did you go and why? So this wasn't my first excursion into being an entrepreneur. Yep. You know, at the time, mm-hmm. I was a partner at a software company, you know, software startup, and had been living that for a few years. And re- we were raising capital, venture-backed, you know, had gone that path for that business. And doing the game, I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to go and have it be something where it's like just my own. And at the time, Dave and I, like where we don't have anybody else telling us what we need to do or anything like that. And no pressure to perform. That was the other really big thing that I noticed was like, you know, if you don't have anybody telling you have to do something like you can just it gives you so much freedom to be more creative because I don't know, just for that reason alone. And this was always a passion project. It was never intended to be. You know, I mean, obviously you're not doing something because you think it's going to fail, but like we didn't look at it like this was going to like just blow up or whatever, you know, like this was a fun thing to do. We've been playing for years, like especially if we're going to take something on in addition to our kind of quote unquote day jobs, like we're just going to have fun with it and see what happens. And that was you know due to prior experiences Mm -hmm. of knowing Mm -hmm. what it was like to having to raise capital. So we went that path and then that was also when, you know, Kickstarter was becoming pretty well known and Kickstarter is more of a marketing opportunity. Mm -hmm. The way that the timing worked out was we had to really race if we were trying to reach the holiday season for 2014. So if you can kind of give you the timeline, you know, we basically thought of this January 1st and our goal was to get on Kickstarter by summer. So like July, August timeframe, because that way we could turn around and we knew how long it took to manufacture games. We could have them out to them by Christmas time. And if we did that, then that's when people we thought would be playing it. Cause the sure. idea was that you playing it at like when you're getting with family and friends right. and things like that. Right, right, right. And then maybe we would catch that wave of people that had just played it. Maybe they would want to buy it for, and get a little momentum going mm-hmm. versus missing that kind of launching in January, February and probably who's not buying having, board games in January, February. And, exactly. So we busted our ass basically to, you know, get us to that point, develop the entire game, develop all the content, create a website, mm-hmm. you know, just put the whole thing together in under 365 days. In yeah, 120 days. And the other big thing too, you know, when we first started doing it, you know, to come up with the content, right? What's actually written on the cards. Mm-hmm. We thought that that was something we were going to do, and we got into it, and there was a couple things we realized. One, we weren't nearly as funny as we thought we were. (laughs) (laughs) Two, it was just really hard to come up with that much stuff. If I may, how much content did you start off with, and how much did you end up with, and how did you create a goal for getting from what you had versus what you believed, you theorized that you needed to create? We had an idea of how many cards in general that we wanted to do which was like 500 and we figured you know hey about 40 to 50 accents and then the rest you know 450 or so would be the phrases the accent part was relatively simple i mean those i'd say we were able to come up with on our own although there was something we learned through gameplay later on that i'll get into but the phrases were the much more complicated so we reached out to our network some Buddies that we knew that we went to college with, mm-hmm. other people that we just kind of, you know, through our networks had different comedians and writers and whatnot. And so we 
asked them to produce these funny phrases, five to 20 words, essentially. Do you not find me funny? Because <laughs> I, I wasn't on that memo. You missed that? You missed my email? <laughs> Must have gone to spam. Right. right. Yeah. Let me check my spam. Right now. <laughs> Sorry, bud. No, next, it's, next all, time. It's, all, it's all good. And uh, the response was great. Uh, we were able to find some really talented people. Some people wrote for like Conan O'Brien for his show. I mean, like some really high level talent. We ended up having them produce like close to 2,000 phrases. Oh, wow. Uh, much more than we needed because we were realizing a lot of them weren't hitting. And so we just kept on going and asking more people. And so we got this big pool that then we would sit there. And that was by far the hardest part was like editing it down. And this is a passion project. We're doing this on nights and weekends. We're trying to, you know, bust all this out. So we kind of had my buddy Dave and I, and then my sister uh, was also heavily involved in kind of determining what that final content looked like. So, you know, whittled it down from, you know, 2000, call it to 450 phrases, which made it into the the final set. I'm from a manufacturing background. Like, how did you develop your packaging? I asked that question because I was in a cab and this guy was Uber, but he had his game with him that he had created. It was called something barn or something. Basically, you build a barn and we flick marshmallows at it. And the goal is like, who can knock down someone else's barn first? And it's like for kids, right? I was like, oh, I have a friend of mine from college that created a game as well. He's like, what games? I said, utter nonsense. He goes, oh my God, that's like the dream packaging. I, I'm trying to, his game came in like, like a, like literally a potato sack. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you know what? Your game sounds cool, but I don't know if I want to lug around a potato sack. Target ain't going to be I, stocking up on no potato right, sack. Games. Right, right. I mean, I think in the right kind of market, maybe, but talk a little bit about how you got to that point from like, you know, hey, we had this concept and so actually the packaging because that's the first thing people see in the store, right? Mm-hmm. If they haven't heard of it. So many little things had to go into every part of this. I mean, so first, you know, as we're coming up with the brand, you come up with the name and everything, you're like, all right, well, now what does the box look like? There was other precedents set, you know, like I mentioned before, Cards Against Humanity had their like style, but we wanted it to be different. We didn't want it to be the same thing that was sitting on the shelf that looked the exact same uh, as those guys. So we again, did like a creative exercise with those same, you know, designers, uh, the creatives that we'd hired to help us come up with the brand. They were also helping us design the packaging and we went through just several iterations. One of the key breakthroughs was we came up with our logo, our mark is another term that people, you know, call it what, what our logo is, our shirt cockers. So if you're not familiar with what a shirt cocker is, it's I am not somebody who's wearing shirt but no pants <laughs> okay that's straightforward <laughs> the Donald Duck yeah one of the funny things about shirt cockers if you look it up like a bunch of hits on like Google searches that come back are Burning Man there's yeah. like no rules at Burning Man no. other than you can't be a shirt cocker they want you buck naked yeah or not so it's so like there's no in between so there's you no be wild or so it's just like, tame I mean it is one of the most like have you been? I've never, but I think I'm going to try to I go have next friends year. That I think go I'm going. Year. I think I'm going next year too. Really? Yeah. We should. Re- we yeah. should hang out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I got permission. You don't tell your wife what you're doing. You ask for permission. Permission. Yeah. We had a long conversation about when did that happen? Like yep. when did when did we hit that point of like telling versus asking? You know, I'm going on a tangent, but yeah. So I got permission to go to Burning Man. So shirt cockers. Okay. You can't at Burning Man. You yeah, can't. Bur- so when you go, remember yeah. either go buck naked yeah. or, or wear you know, something, wear something. So the game, there's this element of juxtaposition that is prevalent throughout the game. It's this concept of like, you know, you may take a very proper British phrase, then say it in a redneck accent. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where the humor comes in. Sure. Right. Right. And so the shirt cockers, they're these like proper British gentlemen. They have like top hats and they're like well-dressed and they're like, you have a glass of wine. 
But then they have no pants. Business up top, party downstairs. Yep, right, that's awesome. exactly. And uh, so we saw that there could be an opportunity with the packaging. So when you look at the packaging, you see the kind of the top half, the proper half. And then as you lift up the top of the box, you start to see feet. And the feet don't have any shoes. It's just, you know, and then you start to see legs and hairy legs. And you're like, keep lifting it up. You're like, am I going to see dong? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the first joke when you nice. get the game. You nice. know, is this reveal of yeah, the short cool. cockers. No, I think I think it's uh, important to be very thoughtful throughout the whole process. Like it's, no, I'm thinking, I'm, yeah, it's I, important to be thoughtful. We want our customers to think right off the bat: Are we going to be seeing dong? Is yeah. this? No, we no, just came I back think, from Target. We I might know. be seeing some dong. <laughs> no, I think it's important because you've thought through every Everything. touch point that the, the game player has. Yep, and then you you already kind of set the tone, right? Saying. Like this is fun. We want you to sometimes be serious, but it, it's gonna be fun. So, so choosing, you know, you don't have to give me. I don't want names, but like choosing a manufacturer and how does that all work? Like, I mean, I'm sure like somebody said, hey, we got like 30 of these things out here. These are these are the folks that are making games. Like, yeah. So, I mean, uh, kind of kind of a similar process throughout. And one thing I will say, like that, I'll kind of give us some credit for is that we were methodical with kind of everything yeah. we did. Yep. Was that it wasn't rushed. I mean, you know, we were moving quickly, swiftly, but we really thought through and evaluated all options. There was a little bit of a playbook. Uh, again, just you know, have to give credit to Cards Against Humanity because they were you know definitely an influence for us. They were in an article that Inc. did that kind of gave the, the blueprint a little bit, mm-hmm. right? And so they talked about who their manufacturer was. So. Mm-hmm. We reached out to them. You did your homework. We did our homework. But we also reached out to a bunch of others. And we ended up going with a group in Michigan. There was a couple reasons. You know, the guys that cards use, they manufacture in China. And that's largely what most manufacturers mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Uh, but we had saw that the spread wasn't so great. And we were you know, pretty nervous um, with making our first production run. Mm-hmm. Kind of liked the fact that this company was in Michigan. We could drive there if we needed to. And there was the whole go USA thing, you know, like if my small way of kind of supporting you know, the economy yeah. and things like that. So mitigating risk and, you know, supporting the economy and, you know, economically, I think it made sense as well. You know, so we interviewed a bunch, ended up deciding on them. But that was, again, just like Google searching. It was like, hey, car- card manufacturers. And you just start to make yeah. calls, shoot emails around, start your pricing. You know, right. it's just, that's it. You've mentioned two stages of the process right now. You've mentioned kind of spitballing the idea and then coming up with the content. And then there's the operation side which is what i love because that's what i'm familiar with and what i've worked with but were there any like times in in both of those situations where you like we hit a dead end we can't go on you know something that you're willing to talk about like because the things happen right just shit happens all the time i'd say the the biggest hurdle if i'm i can maybe jump ahead was to whether or not to go retail when we were first doing this, again, going back to like our kind of guiding light was what Cards Against Humanity did. They were anti-retail. They, at the time, were not, you couldn't find them in stores. It was only online on right. their website or on Amazon. So we just assumed, well, that's what we're going to do. So after we you know, got funded on Kickstarter and we were contacted by one retailer, Marbles the Brain Store. They're a local Chicago company, but they've got a national presence. They have a lot of respect like for kind of finding up and coming games and whatnot. And through a mutual relationship, I was put in touch with the CEO and they agreed to carry our game. And that alone, though, was like a really big decision because it's kind of like, well, we're going a different direction than we ever wanted to because right. retail is very different from direct to consumer. 
right? So when you start talking now about the business side of it and margins mm-hmm. and and just understanding that concept, I mean, retail in itself is a whole new animal that neither of us were familiar with and yep. that there's a lot to understand. I mean, there's just all kinds of terms and intricacies and ways that that business works mm-hmm. versus like, you know, just spin up a website and like people come on and click and buy and e-commerce that has its own challenges. And we had to find right, a right. web designer and right. do all that, set up a store mm-hmm. and shipping and yeah. fulfillment, all these terms that like, again, you know, wasn't familiar right. with. That was a big decision. And we just kind of felt at the time, we felt like this game had a very viral element to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like somebody brings us to a party, 10 people play it, maybe and they tell two friends. They tell two friends. And so on. And, and so, so on. Exactly. And so that was like, in our head, we were like, okay, we're not selling our souls to the devil yet. It's just like, one, and they're kind of like a cool hip retailer. Because mm-hmm. the other thing too is like, we wanted to keep it cool. Like we felt like we didn't want customers. We wanted fans. We wanted people that were like charged up about this. And like, we felt like if you were too mass uh, you know, out there, like you've already you've missed the hipsters, and the hipsters make things cool. I really like the fan concept versus consumer bit as well, because I feel like in anything, whether it's produce, whether it's music, any product, anything you could put a label on, in my experience, things that really have to be pushed, why do you have to push it so hard? For as far as advertising. So I think typically word of mouth is always a great way because if something doesn't suck, it'll tell you it doesn't suck. If you have to put out a giant banner that says, this doesn't suck, like, or does it? (laughs) So I like the fan bit. I'm a huge believer in that. And if I can bring this full circle to when you asked me the question about whether to bootstrap or raise capital, this is where that decision really matters. Because we had nobody telling us we had to hit certain targets, we didn't feel like we owed anybody any money, then we could make every single decision just purely based on what we felt was in the best benefit of the game and what were for us too, selfishly, right? I mean, we had jobs, we had other things going on in our life, like we didn't want to put added pressure on us to do certain things. And I will stand here and say today like that was probably the most important thing that's led to our success was not having that pressure and being able to make every decision just independent of what anybody else cared. Like I just couldn't give a fuck about anybody's opinion but my own, you know? And your partner. Yeah. And my partner. Yeah. So you started with this smaller retailer, but then you made the decision, obviously, to go to Target. Right. Right. And that had to be a big decision, right? As you're, you're probably growing really fast. And there's always this, there's a trade-off, right? Like you said, you're getting really big too fast or are we big enough where we can make that jump? And then when you go to a big retailer like Target, they have, it's, it's a different ballgame, I would assume. So how was that leap different than the retail you had before? So uh, obviously things are moving very quickly, right? So it was a whisper in January. We eventually got the thing to market, launched on Kickstarter, got funded in August. Shortly after that, we were being accepted to be carried in Marbles, the brain store. Ultimately came out with the games, physically you know, had them in kind of our, our backers' hands by right before Thanksgiving. So like we hit our goal. And then in January, we were contacted by Target. You know, we're two, we're two months basically into the market when it's out there, right. you know, uh, in the public domain. Which, to, to your credit, is pretty rare for a, a large retailer to pick you up that quickly. Yeah, to my knowledge, like, that doesn't happen. I mean, yeah. after, again, learning more about the space is that, you know, for somebody of that size, they will want something that's proven in the marketplace, right? So they'll want to see 
three to four years of success being right. retail right. before they would bring it on board. And right. typically, don't people in your position have to go to try to approach major retail stores like Target and ask to come in or have to pay for slotting, shelving fees, slotting fees, what have you? Instead, they came to you. Is that correct? Yeah. So what happened was while we're doing this, my sister also started working for us. And, you know, no experience in PR whatsoever, but she just started like reaching out to different writers. We'd look up, you know, hey, who covers games? Well, there was this one publication in the UK called the Toy and Game News, and they decided to write a story on us. Well, who reads stories in Toy and Game News? People that are in Target. Cool. Buyers in Target. I read it every once in a while, too. So the buyer saw this article and was like, that sounds awesome. We need to have that. Great PR. So Target calls in January, says, hey, we want to carry your game. We're still kind of like just figuring out what's going on, right? This is still just like a kind of a fun side thing for Did you us. think it was a prank at first or did you like, oh yeah, Target's digging, <laughs> digging my shit? Obviously. No, I mean, I didn't think it was a prank, but I will say like I didn't take it serious. Right. I was kind of like, oh, they probably like send these a lot, out to a lot of people, but like it won't go anywhere. So I ended up like taking a meeting with them and I was like, okay, damn, I don't really... I don't think it's the right play right now for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about. Like I just wanted to go slow, let this thing happen organically. Here was my biggest concern. The difference of why we said yes to marbles and I said no to target was marbles has these people that kind of will walk you to the game, show you mm-hmm. how to play it. They're very hands-on. So yep. it's like you walk into a story, you're like I'm looking for a party game. You know, it's like, here, let me show you how to do this. At target, you don't have that. You walk down the aisle and it's just got to grab you. And it's like, Oh, Monopoly. I played that before. I heard of that. So my concern was that if we say yes and the game's a flop, doesn't sell anything, then we'll never get that opportunity again. Right. Like it'd be impossible to get back into Target once we did it once and it failed. So that's why I was like, let's just let this thing happen for a little bit and then let's talk next year and do it then. Yeah. And they would not say no. So they listened to why I was saying no and they're like, well, here's what we'll do for you. So going back to your question, there's all these different terms that I had to familiarize myself with, which is like end cap. So that's like Mattel and companies like that pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to have like the premier shelving space, the level that you're at on the shelf. Mm -hmm. I did not realize that major retailers charge based on what parking space you get on the shelf. Yeah. Because like, you know, you want to be eye level if you think about it. No, I totally Versus like the bottom shelf. Sure. The rationale behind it is that's money that the whatever store their overhead. You're covering their overhead to place it in a, in a premier spot. Yeah, I always assumed that was just indicative of how big whatever brand sales were. If it was greater, be at eye level shelf. I didn't realize that it came straight from the merchant themselves. Right. When what I was getting at when I asked you that question about you know going big retail, small retail, because sometimes you have to invest in trade spin, right, to get your stuff placed. You know, whether it be discounts or whether it be spending dollars to get it, like what you call them, the end caps. They had these other things called pedestals that, you know, stick out of the shelf. Mm-hmm. There's six of them on the entire game shelf. They offered that. Um, circulars, like in ads and advertising, yeah. you know, all these things that people pay for, they're just offering them. So they're like, okay, we hear you. Here's how we can combat that. Right. You know, we're not going to have somebody that's going to stand there and like show them your game. But like we can say, this is the target yeah. pick. Like all these things that from a marketing perspective, eventually the offer the got offer so, was too good. To, right. too good. And, and, and there was like, you know, all the fears that I had, you know, so then you start learning about retail and you hear yeah. about all these horror stories of mm-hmm. how retailers just yeah. like 
smash small businesses because they like place big orders and they don't sell and they make you buy them back. So all these like different things that, you know, we had to address throughout the process. And to their credit, they agreed to all of our terms Terms. and it was in good faith. They were like, Hey, listen, like we may be a big brand, but like their position was like, I'm just a person here talking to you and telling you like, this is something I want to do. And so we've developed a really good rapport, ultimately said yes. And so, you know, as of March of 2015, yeah. we had a purchase order to have every Target in America, all 1,800 stores, we're going to be carrying the game as of August. Jeez. That's a good deal. So what you're describing, though, is they are basically giving you like, millions of dollars of investment that you don't have to do that other people have to do. So when this comes to you, are you realizing that they're giving you something that they don't give a lot of people and that it equates to a lot of money? There was ignorance. It was yeah. not arrogance. Things, are, again, are just moving so fast. A lot of these terms that I'm now saying, like, I didn't know what they meant. They're like, we'll give you end caps. We'll give you, cert-. you know, I'm like. And you're like, time out. And you go in a huddle and like, what? Google. What's yeah, so Dave and I would be like, what's it? What's it? What's that? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, Google yeah. search. Right, right. And, uh, you know, we started to comprehend you know throughout yeah. the process yeah. you know yeah. over the month or so or two months that we were you know talking to them right that this is uncommon that this is a situation that not everybody's in the position to be in right. you know typically uh you have people in our shoes are chasing companies like that mm-hmm. to, to get in stores and it was purely ignorance though it was right. not you know arrogance but whatever it means so every every entrepreneur that i meet they have a story about them being ignorant about something and it works out throughout the process you've been very smart some of it is just like, it's just luck, right? It is luck. Like bringing your sister on at that right, at that moment. And, and her picking that out, right publication. And picking the, that publication. Yeah. And then someone picking it up. Huge. Let me ask you this question, though. This is your passion piece, and you like it, but then Target comes. Why do you think they liked it so much and why they were willing to waive potentially six, seven-figure number to get your product? Well, what about the product resonated with what they were trying to do at the store? Good, good question. So- what we realized throughout this process and ever since we said yes to marbles, because even getting in marbles was a very big deal. That's a hard nut to crack. Games out of the box, like, you know, new like us would die to get into, into marbles. Right. What we realized was that kind of that adult party game space, there was a massive void in retail because of what cards had done. The cards, by shunning them, typical consumer doesn't know that they're not carried in retail. So mm-hmm. it's like, they have all these people coming into their stores saying, I want I need to get this card. And they're like, I don't have it. Sorry, we don't carry it. So they were hungry for a party game, you know, that they could say, oh, you know what? We don't have them actually, but we have this one. And so we filled that void. And once we realized that too, so it was this culmination of things with like making that target decision, we realized that that could maybe be our niche, that that could be like the play for us. But to start out, you didn't start thinking, oh, we're going to ride this cards wave. You said, oh, I got this product. I want to push it. I'm going to do all the things I need to do. And then once you got to the end, that's another one of those kind of like, oh, okay, let's roll with this. You know, this is this is interesting. It's the right time. Yes. If you put it into category, right, there's there's hard work. There's luck. Let's break it down in this situation. Percentage wise, hard work, luck. That's a good one. You know, it's, I'd say it's, it's pretty close to 50-50. Right. I will say, like, I'm, I feel very good about how methodical we were. Yeah, In, in like every it. decision that we made, I just can confidently say, like, it was thought through. I can't say then, you know, a lot of the things that led us to the success was because we didn't make decisions early on that put us on the path. But, you know, there was something else out there that was 
coming together for us that we weren't controlling. Festa Italia 2016. Little Italy, Chicago flag, right? Yes. Thank you. Yes. Are you from, not from here? I only just moved in three months ago, and I've seen this a few times. I saw a tattoo a couple yeah. of times. Where are you from? I was wondering what it was. Where are you from? Near Manchester in England. Oh, I'm an Arsenal fan. Oh, yeah? yeah. I'm a Manchester United fan. Uh, oh, you got my guy, Ibrahimovic. I like that guy. I love He's that guy. He's doing well at the moment, isn't Already, he? Already, yeah. Yeah, so this is... Um, Probably one of the most recognizable flags in the country. The blue. Love it. Two blues. One for the river, one for the lake. Right. Right? That's what it represents. And the four stars. The four stars are for four major events in Chicago. Like, uh, one is the Industrial Revolution, Chicago Fire, the uh, Great Exposition. And then, like, uh, I think the other one is... Fort Dearborn, which is the founding of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. There was a Haitian guy that founded Chicago. So... It's good little, identity little trap, isn't it? Yeah, there so you go. Well, welcome, welcome to Chicago. All right. And Hank came in, and he mentioned peanut butter to me, so I have no clue where he's going with this. But first of all, what was what what was your involvement with it? Let me ask you this first. How, how did you hear about that, or did you <laughs> see that? Am I, is, it, is it classified? Am I not supposed no, to? No, no, no. I mean, it's, just, it's in my LinkedIn profile, so that's what I'm I guessing. Did my homework. Got it. So you checked me out. Yes. Cool. So peanut butter, it's a software startup in Chicago, relatively new. And the previous venture that I mentioned that I was a part of, Point Drive, uh, we were just acquired in July by LinkedIn. So, you know, had been doing that for, you know, the past five years. All of a sudden, LinkedIn comes along and they acquired us. Throughout that period, I've just been really involved in the startup community. I love startups in general. I love people going out there trying to disrupt just things that need to be disrupted, basically. So wanting to continue to be a part of the community, even though I was no longer actively in it, call it, you know, as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. in, the, yep. in the startup space, decided to put some money into different companies that I felt like just for whatever reason I, I liked them. And so peanut butter is one of those companies. Uh, so I'm just an investor, but I'm also an advisor. So yeah, I have nothing to do with it, I guess, in terms of like creating it or anything like that. Merely just a schmuck that is trying to help them go from nothing to something. Well, reading between the different ventures you've involved yourself in, specifically Point Drive, but also very much so Peanut Butter, it seems like there's these really awesome niches that need to be addressed. And specifically with Peanut Butter, if I understand it correctly, and please clarify if I am incorrect, with them going through and working with different employers to offer benefits to the millennial generation to help offset, pay out, give benefits towards knocking out their student debt. Just how you have 401ks, you get healthcare through your employer, now you have a product that helps to bring down their debt as well rather than just them taking home a paycheck saying, oh great, now I get to burn it for student debt. Is that more or less correct? You said it better than I could. <laughs> yeah. That is really addressing, hi, millennial. It's a great need and that's a, a really great way to tackle a common problem, a common $1.3 trillion problem. Yep. You, you hit it on the head. I mean, you honestly said it better than I could. But um, so David Aronson's the founder of Peanut Butter. Uh, we were introduced to him through a mutual friend. 
and I say we because there's a couple guys that I've teamed up together to pool our money and, and are looking at different deals like this. Uh, just casual as an investment philosophy. I largely like the B2B space. And I know that's funny as we just spent the past hour talking about uh, a consumer card game. But just in my head, I just can comprehend and understand B2B businesses better. I think the consumer space is like a one in a million shot. I think why a Snapchat takes off or, you know, something of that Twitter, whatever, you know, it's just like, I don't understand it. I can understand why a business has a need that is a pain point that they are willing to pay money for to solve. And I think it's a Midwest mentality. And so I think Chicago is starting to get a lot of more respect for their startup community. I think you look at the coast, typically the coasts have been kind mm-hmm. of like where all the activities at, it's where the money's at, it's right. where all the press is at. And here's just this Chicago, the little engine that could. I'm from Chicago, diehard Chicago fan, supporter, et cetera. And I kind of feel like this B2B space is where we might end up creating a name for ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a personal you know, business philosophy of yeah. mine, yeah. you know, in terms of investing. And so peanut butter came along and there's a couple factors, you know, at that stage of the game, you're really investing. You have to like the concept, but it's the founder. I mean, that's, or it's the team. So the team at that stage is, I think, more important than the concept. I think it's 90% execution when you're that small, just getting going. But the idea was very powerful because student loan crisis is massive. Like you said, 1.3 trillion. There's higher default rates for student loan repayments than there are for credit cards. Something's got to give. And I think one solution could be that employers start to get involved in helping the process because I think there's a huge spotlight being shown at how important it is for recruiting good talent. There was an independent study done that showed that, you know, these millennials who are carrying student debt would rather have their student debt repaid than a 401k, which makes complete sense. Why am I worried about saving for retirement when I'm still having to pay back my student loans? So I just feel like that pain point is big enough. And, you know, so the, so right now there is no tax benefit to employers or employees for paying back student loans. However, there are bills on the floor of the House and the Senate, and it could even be at a uh, local government level. So it doesn't necessarily have to be something that happens nationally. You can have it at a state level, whatever. So that's kind of our big bet is that we think, like you said, at some point, it'll become like a 401k. So you have all these different benefits. You have HSA, you have 401k. Or like healthcare. At some point, healthcare wasn't offered. And then it became the thing. It's another benefit, right? Mm -hmm. So we think that it could one day be ubiquitous. That it's just a benefit that everybody is offered, and if they have you know student loans, that they can choose to participate in this. So that's the company. That's what they're doing. They're going around to employers and saying, mm-hmm. you know, hey, we have a platform here that we've built, and you know, if you have students, it helps them with recruiting, retaining talent. You know, that's some of the biggest benefits that they see to the employers. Are you able to speak at all to the business model of that? As far as do you, is the process a matter of? garnishing a percentage of someone's income and then matching it? How does that work exactly? And how do you back it? I'll trip over myself if I get too detailed, but I think, you know, the concept here is ideally they're finding, the companies are finding budget for this. They're saying, Hey, we're going to contribute a hundred bucks a month if you want to, which I'd say if you have a student loan, you chose not to, uh, there'd be no reason, but the, some of the scenarios are, it's like an either, or, you know, so, Hey, you can either, We'll, we'll contribute to your 401k or we'll contribute to this. So I think that's something that, you know, everyone's still trying to figure out of how they want to go about it. You mentioned something that I wanted to kind of dig deeper in. Yeah, you need a good product idea, 
but you actually look at leadership. So what is it about a leadership team that you're looking for or a CEO? Because these CEOs are, and you've been there, they're very different. They live and breathe their product. There's nothing else going on, and they sacrifice everything. So, But what is it that you're looking for, characteristics, qualities, and things like that? Yeah, so how committed are they to this, right? I mean, is it like you know that analogy of like, you go into battle and then you take the boat and then it's like, they go burn the boat. There is no going back. Right. Like that's kind of like, <laughs> okay. All right. you know I like I mean? that. Like, yeah. It's like kind of what you want to see is that like, they're all in, they're going to make this work. Hell or high will come hell or high water mm-hmm. and they're going to go down swinging, you know, otherwise. And so, and so, yeah, just trying to like figure out like what their personal situation is, like how much do they have riding on this and the more the merrier, I mean, yep. versus some guy that's pretty well set up and, it's like, well, if it doesn't work, you know, I've got this to fall back on. It's like, yeah. I, don't, I don't want that safety net. You know, a lot of it's your gut. You know, I, th- I think mm-hmm. that's a harder one to obviously quantify, but yeah. I think it's just worked with and dealt with enough people. And you, I'd like to think I can read them pretty well and I can right. tell if like the quality of their character and mm-hmm. if they're going to, you know, seem honest and what, do what they're going to say they're going to do. And right. So another thing you touched on was this um, coastal bias when it comes to startups and whether it be in tech or any kind of industry. And the knock on Chicago is that Chicago doesn't have an edge about it when it comes to like, we're too nice. We're, we're Midwestern nice. Is that your experience? You go from being CEO, founder, and also you work for a startup as well, right? You're you know, one of the first employees and now you go to seeing the other side where you're evaluating this and now you're in the ecosystem, as they say in the business. Do you notice that that is different than the coast? I guess I like that. Like I like that there's yep. a more of like a humble attitude and approach mm-hmm. about people in Chicago in general, you know? And I think there's that, it's that blue collar Midwestern mentality and, I look at that as a positive, you know, as opposed to on the coast where there's, we're making broad generalizations yeah, definitely. here. I'm, I right? am painting a you broad You can speak rush. to your own experiences. Yeah, yeah. You know, where I think there's probably a little bit more arrogance. I sure maybe I see that, but like, I don't look at that as a negative. I look okay. at that as more of a positive, quite honestly. Yeah. You know, I listened to this, this podcast called like Tech in Chicago. And, and one of the investors said, he's like, we're humble. Midwesterners are humble. We almost like when we have somebody down. The deal is ready to go. We're not willing to like slit that throat. Got it. I think that's Step what, on their neck. Be the Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant in his prime would just you just take your heart out. And he goes, and sometimes that's the difference between, you know, 1X or 2X. And he was making this example. I was like, oh, I get that. But then I can also see the other side is that you, you want this ability to wake up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror when you do certain things. The company you told us about is, is actually helping people. You know right. what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, it's like, it's, it literally could change how we view benefits, you know, especially for young people, especially people that they don't have a really good reputation in our society right now, millennials. I feel like everybody's making fun of millennials or... They're soft. Right, they're soft and all this I stuff. I bash them too and I'm one of them. You know, I get a lot of, what do you want to get out of it? If it's like purely just to become wealthy and that's your only goal, then yeah, maybe I would agree with that guy. Going back to, I think like that kind of Midwestern sensibility of like, that's not my only goal. And that certainly is, has an influence, you know, and what I'm I'm not investing money to lose it because I I like somebody, but I don't have to have it be like some insane return. Like if it does well and 
that does other people well, mm-hmm. like that's a win to me. Okay. Would you rather make a million dollars quick or make a hundred grand and help address a major cause at the same time? There's different forms of wealth. Could you say that? You can. Yeah, it depends. You know, the numbers would have to kind of work out. <laughs> 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 I, you know, I was the best of both worlds is that you get both. <laughs> yes. You know, where you make some money and you feel good about it too. From your perspective, being on in these three different types of modes of investing or being a part of the startup community, what, what's the difference between being invested in, bootstrapping, and then being a person that's investing in someone? You know, I had a couple different jobs out of college mm-hmm. um, in a variety of industries. Liked them all to a certain degree, but I felt like I always had this like kind of passion mm-hmm. to do my own thing, be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And so Point Drive, the company that I ended up working with, first I, I was an investor. So I, I'd known the guy that started it from college, got involved as an investor, and then kind of got to a certain point with what I was doing in my day job that I was like, you know what? Like, I think this is kind of a good way to stick my toe in the water. It was something I was involved in. I had some money on the line. I wanted to figure out you know, what it was like to grow something from the ground up. So talked to the founder and said, Hey, what what do you think about kind of teaming up and let's try to run with this thing. So throughout doing that learned a ton. So, I mean, the education from that experience is priceless in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I think there's so many, there's so many things that I learned that I applied almost unknowingly to the game, you know, started from scratch and, you know, so it kind of came clear to me as I was doing my own thing from scratch of like how much I'd actually learned, which you don't necessarily realize like in the moment. Going back to your original question though, and now, you know, investing more frequently mm-hmm. in other people, I think I'm a lot smarter than I was when I did the first one. So if you remember the first one I did, I was like, I didn't know jack shit about startups mm-hmm. and, you know, but I just was like, ah, like, this seems like a good idea. Let's do this. Now I definitely know the right questions to ask. I know what I'm looking for. I'm very much more opinionated on what I think is going to make a successful company in person, et cetera. The biggest difference though, is like when you're running your own thing, you are in control. The hardest part is when you're investing in somebody, it's like, you are not in control. Like you are saying, here you go, run with it. And that's like a very vulnerable place to be, especially for someone with like a type A personality that likes to be in control. So I don't know if that totally answers the question, but I mean, I think that's kind of the biggest, you know, been the biggest learning experience. You're truly having no real involvement, you know, even like with peanut butter, I'm an advisor, but it's like, I'm not there day to day. I don't really know what's going on. I'm not managing, I'm not helping every strategic decision that's being made. I'm, you know, just kind of like staying in touch and Mm -hmm. getting on calls every once in a while and, and an advisor. So that's the thing I'm I'm still learning. I mean, I'm always learning yeah. in every phase of life. Yeah. That's been, I think, the biggest thing for me is like I've, I'm right. very opinionated right now because I've had a little bit of success and had a couple of wins. And I'm like, I feel very strongly that I know the direction of things that I want to do mm-hmm. and go. Yeah. I'm just saying I'm very opinionated, right? Yeah. And so now with like these companies that I'm investing in, it's like, it's not my show. I can help give advice, but like yeah. it's not up to me. So do you think that your reputation at Point Drive and with utter utter nonsense, which are which which makes you very diverse, right? Has that helped create deal flow? There's a lot of people with money, right? But what a lot of these companies want is someone with know how. They want the dollars and they want you to be an advisor. There's you know, there's people that 
are familiar with my story one way or the other mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and come to me for advice i'd say is probably the most common thing it's it's starting to happen you know i mean yep. even like what's been kind of cool you know now at linkedin is that you know i feel like deep down people a lot of people want to like do their own thing you know i think mm -hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that would love to kind of like run their own show and yep. where i'm at now i'm getting a lot of questions and people that have different business ideas that they right. want to do there's right. like it could be like a foodie blog whatever it is you yeah. know but they just have questions of where to get started or a lot of things like like how do you get a name like hey i want to i've got an idea like how do i trademark it and i'm like oh well here's like my trademark attorney or yeah. this kind of knowledge that i built up that i don't even necessarily realize it until start people start asking those questions that yeah. like i feel like could yeah my mind are pretty basic but it's like oh yeah like i was there once like i didn't even know how to create it I don't think you realize how many barriers you overcame because you just didn't know. And then when you got to the point of the end, you're like, oh, I did that. Okay. And then people are like, no, you did that. Like, please help me understand what you did. And you're like, well, I did this. And, and you probably you probably have 2,000 contacts that will help someone else along the way solve a really big problem that you didn't even know was a big problem for you because you were just like, oh, it's just a passion process. You know, like there's a, there's a piece that yeah, I was doing. Just figuring it out, you know. Right. Right. And it sounds really cheesy and corny and cliche, but it's like uh, the journey is the destination that whatever that saying is that it's like, you, you know, the, the journey is kind of like what's been the most fun. Like you get to a certain place and like you think you're yeah. going to like be yeah. happy. Yeah. But the it's hunt like is better than the catch. Yeah. It's like you get you get there and then I'm like, man, now I just want to do it again. <laughs> The people that say that are the ones that get a big catch at the end. Like, oh, the journey was awesome. <laughs> you <laughs> when you the, fall flat on your face, right, right, it's not right. as you're not like, oh, I want to do that again. Right, which is a great lead in, right? You talked about winners. You talked about every investor always has some things that, that didn't go the right way. I don't need a name, but an experience. Is there? Is oh, there... I've got one perfectly. Yes, yeah. 24, 25 years old, a buddy of mine. Uh, that I went to high school with, who's a party promoter, calls me and says, hey, I've got this new club that's opening up. And oh, bar? Yep. No, don't do, don't, don't tell me you did that. And I was like, you know, 25, whatever. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's sick. I could be owner of a club and like get a bottle service and like, you know, be like that guy. I, like, that's <laughs> I want to be I can show. Guy. I can show up when I want. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to be awesome. No velvet rope will ever block right. me. Walk right in. <laughs> I'll just go some. Hey, put, I'm sorry, put, man. Put on I, my tab. Me and put on my tab. 75 other guys feeling the same way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, I literally have been like, oh, my God. I, I know this guy. This guy's a genius. And then you get to this point. I'm like, he didn't just do yeah, this in a bar. No. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wait. So, 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 yeah, so, so said yes to this. Day before it's about to go, it's about to open. Huge news publication comes out in the Trib and on the news. I mean, everywhere that the guy who started it was indicted for like all kinds of like crazy crimes and like just embezzling money or like so tons of white collar crimes. Tons of like yeah, he had like a separate fund that he was like basically commingling accounts and like. Again, what is commingling? I got to look up, you know, yeah. uh, I'm like 25, like, please commingling. What does that mean? Um, is that bad? 
I like to mingle. I think, What's I, wrong with co-mingling? That yeah. sounds lovely. I think, I think right. if you put uh, indictment and co-mingle, <laughs> not, just, anything not with indictment good. is just bad. Indictment is going to ruin whatever comes next. So a day before the opening. day before they open. Oh, and so shit. you're just like, this is not what you want to see. So it opens up. I mean, it's like FBI level shit. I mean, this is like <laughs> bad. So give a month, things shut down. He's in jail. That investment just didn't get didn't get a return gone. on that one. No, it didn't get a return. Okay. The best part about it is that <laughs> there's more. <laughs> again, it's it's about lessons, right? So it's like, hey, what did I learn from that? Before I did it though, I, I talked to two people that I respected in business. I talked mm-hmm. to my dad and I talked to yep. uh, like a mentor of mine. My dad said very simply, he goes, This guy's done this before. Go talk to his previous investors and just see how it's worked out for them. Right? Like common sense. Like that's such an easy thing to do. Sure. Other mentor said, um, he's like, I only invest in myself. He's like, I've had so many of these deals where it's like, it sounds great, whatever, sexy, give money and like, just never see it again. Mm-hmm. To both of them, I'm like, you guys don't know. Like, it's a club. <laughs> it's a club. Yeah. Like this is going to be the hottest thing ever. So I'm sorry. Still to this day. So you went to the references yeah. and disregarded the references. I, well, I didn't, I didn't even ask him. I was like, he gave me the advice and I didn't take it. So in both cases, Anytime I do this now, like I will check references. So if I'm going to put money into somebody or something, you know, I'm going to check that person out. I'm going to see who they're, you know, they've networked with or whoever that, you know, they're involved with. Yep. And then largely I would say that I'm, I invest in myself. I mean, yes, I've put money to other things, but I would say like the lion's share of what I'm doing these days is that I'm investing in me. It seems um, looking at your whole portfolio here between, uh, peanut butter and your, your, your tech work, as well as the card games. It seems like Chicago actually is a pretty integral part as we were discussing before, how the different attitudes of business at the coast compared to here differ as well as your own personality when it comes to what you want to invest in and why the personality of your investments, what, and even with the packaging of, um, on the creative aspect side of things with your art directors, with your writers, with the, with, with the cards, putting it all together, is there anything of the city that you think was very profound in sculpting your entire portfolio? Because it seems like even from business as well as to creative and art, because you you mentioned how you brought in comedy writers for just coming up with phrases. Mm-hmm. Chicago is notorious for second city. Uh, it's second city yep. and the entire comedy scene, as well as, yes, we have a very underrated business sector here as well. That heart went into your investments. It wasn't just cutthroat, cold, how quickly can I make how much? I think what you're getting at, and I think I can just kind of con- confirm as like, yes, it's kind of my answer is that because of Chicago and being successful to this point, mm-hmm. I think it's like a lot of the people that I've interacted with and that I've worked with and that we've worked together to help build things. Like it's been those people that have helped, you know, make these different ventures successful. Yep. And I think that's like, at the end of the day, it's like these companies and whatever you're doing is like, it's people that are behind it, you know, mm-hmm. that are making those decisions to, to help something grow and to be what it is. So without a doubt, I would credit Chicago and the mentality of that kind of Midwestern blue collar. And then, you know, I just think those are attributes that, 
I appreciate and that I want to be a part of and that mm-hmm. I want to support. There isn't that same, you know, I hate to say again, generalizing, but like there isn't that same arrogance. Like there is like just a little bit more humbleness to the people here. There's that kind of wanting to help each other and yep. work with each other and mm-hmm. support each other. It's not, it's not nearly as cutthroat on the court, uh, you know, on the coast. And without a doubt, I've benefited from that, you know, and I'd like to think that it's like a two way street. You know, and that I'm hopefully giving back to help other people be successful. My experience with entrepreneurs is that either someone in their family is an entrepreneur or they get to college and they get they get a spark. I knew you in college. You weren't in all these entrepreneur clubs and organizations. I mean, that I remember. So where did this spark come from? My dad definitely is you know, he's a businessman, but he's mm-hmm. largely worked for himself, you know, for most of his career. It'd be hard for me not to say that there's some influence there, yep. even though I don't necessarily like directly feel like that's been like what just pushed me to it. Mm-hmm. But I'd say like growing up that way, I kind of saw him working for himself. I'd say there's like kind of this sounds weird, but like a, like a little fire inside me. I was relatively immature coming out of college. Didn't fully understand life, what I wanted to do, where mm. I wanted to be. Right. It was just kind of like, oh, this sounds fun. I'm going to do that. Like, this sounds good. I'm going to do that. Like, can I make money at that? Like, that sounds good. While that was happening, you know, while I was doing other jobs and mm-hmm. careers and, you know, it was going well, but I was just never happy. That fire just kind of like started continually to burn and to grow and got to a certain point where I'm like, God, there's something here that's not right. Like I need to kind of step out and do it myself and be different and go a different path. But the experience I had like in my twenties helped me just come to the conclusion, helped me mature and it helped me come to the conclusion of what I wanted to do. I think there's people that maybe go to college and they're like, I want to be a doctor. They go through that process and like, that's what they were destined to be. I will say like, there's nothing prouder than I can say of like for somebody to call me an entrepreneur I'm like fuck yeah you know like <laughs> right. and that can mean like any number of things like right, you know right. I don't know what I'm going to do next you know and it could be totally unrelated to anything we're talking about here today but I just you know know that I'm going to be excited about trying to figure that out I would I would be remiss if I didn't do the whole connection to Chicago so where are you from originally I like to say I'm from Chicago I'm technically from Hinsdale you know, suburb just west of the city. Grew up there till I was 13. And then um, the youngest of three, my brother and sister both went to Hinsdale Central. And I decided to, on a whim, I should say, uh, decided to go to Ignatius. So my dad had gone to Ignatius. He had campaigned with the, the prior, you know, my brother and sister and basically didn't uh, didn't win them over. I kind of approached him and said, hey, you know, I think I'd like to go to Ignatius. So instantly became his favorite child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for those listening, St. Ignatius is a private Catholic school on the near west side, Chicago. Yeah. Is, it, is it on Roosevelt? Taylor Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's, it's 1076 West Roosevelt. I have a near miss experience with Ignatius myself. And I know a lot of people whether it be from the fraternity or living in Lincoln Park that went to Ignatius. Anybody that was Catholic in this area goes to Ignatius. That's an awesome school, actually. So I'm, I'm very, very passionate about the school. Yeah. Uh, I would say 
that's probably had one of the biggest influences on, on my life. I didn't necessarily grow up Catholic. Christian, yes, but mm-hmm. not particularly Catholic. It's a very open-minded school. So even though it is Catholic, it's not like it's like the first two years of school, you take uh, religious studies and it's all religions. And hands down till this day, my favorite classes I've ever taken. You know, again, kind of grew up in a bubble in Hinsdale, very white, upper class. I think I went to I had one black kid that I went to school with. That wasn't me. It wasn't you. It wasn't me. I wasn't no. his though. It was like basically Carlton now. Carlton. Yeah. <laughs> Nichols. Yeah, it was Nichols. Nichols. <laughs> it was Nichols. Uh, so here you go to a school that it's considered a very prestigious school. They accept students on a needs blind basis. And what that means is that if you qualify to go to school there, largely because of your grades and your testing, uh, you will be accepted. So you can come from wherever you're at. And if you qualify, you're in. Versus a Latin or a Loyola where it's more about the paycheck and you know, how can you afford it? Can you afford it? I will just say that being put into that environment mm-hmm. at such a critical, I think kind of a crossroads critical age of your development, yep. you know, when you're 13 and I think you're just kind of going through some awkward years and yeah. to kind of be exposed to some different cultures like that, especially again, coming from where I was at, you know, where I grew up to now be like taking an L you know, having yeah. all the different colors, of the well, rainbow at school well, and like I, I, learning about different religions. Right. I mean, right. that just opened up my brain. So for our listeners, that neighborhood right now, is really close to little Italy, Maxwell street area. But back when Tim and I were younger, that neighborhood was surrounded by row houses and projects. So yeah. to get to and from school, you had to go through, I mean, you had to go through some neighborhoods that you are not accustomed to going through. Right? Yeah. So that first, <laughs> I can imagine that first month or two, you're like, whoa, this is different. And then one of the things I, I love about Ignatius is that some of the kids are from those neighborhoods. Like you said, it's, it's, it's needs blind. I actually attended Holy Family, which was connected. Oh, to Ignatius. I didn't know that. So Holy Family funneled kids into Ignatius, right? That was one of the things I, I always tell my wife. I want to get our kids into selective enrollment schools. And right now they go to an international school. When we're applying for schools, Ignatius will absolutely be on the list. I went to Andrew Jackson Language Academy, and a lot of kids from Andrew Jackson that were Catholic went to Ignatius as well. Not too long ago, you went back to Ignatius and gave a speech. I've read a lot of people's speeches. I thought it was one of the like one of the more amazing speeches that I've read. You talked about you have this opportunity at the school, but you need to think bigger than yourself. You need to go out and do things you I'm a paraphrase of a lot of you said you need to do things that you've never done before. And you you mentioned something about you you went breakdance. You like you learn how to breakdance, right? And you need to go to places that you've never been and not just I'm in college, go to, I want to go, <laughs> I want to go to Mardi Gras or go to like some resort, really stretch yourself. Do you think you picked that up along the way or was that something that was, you know, kind of taught at Ignatius? I'd say I picked that up from my family. I would, say I would credit my mom, you know, more so every Thanksgiving. I remember as a kid, we would come downtown and we would go to the food kitchens the homeless shelters. shelters, you know, so we we're doing that on the holidays. So it was like, Hey, you know, you may live in this bubble, but there's a whole nother world that exists that, you know, you need to be conscious of. So from the get go, they're very good about making us aware of that, but it was 
hammered home and reinstilled at Ignatius. I mean, there was more of an emphasis about giving back to the community at that school than like I'd ever been. It was in doses with my family. I was teased it, yeah. but then it was like at Ignatius. I mean, they just like do unto others and service others. And I mean, mm-hmm. it was like just hammered back, you know, hammered into us. I can definitely credit them with again you're kind of at an awkward stage in your development when you're in high school and you're growing up and like i just felt like there was enough strictness to keep you on the straightened path but then enough freedom to kind of like let your mind expand right and exposure to things to let you see that there's other things out there i mean as far as like the speech goes i mean that was one of the coolest things i've ever been asked to do i mean i i still don't understand why i was asked to do it it was it was all the seniors at ignatius it was the first ever job career fair and they basically asked me to keynote it it was a huge honor so i spoke about just like hey listen you guys have been given an incredible opportunity but also like think bigger than what you probably have already and I spoke largely about traveling too. That was a, that was mm-hmm. a big kind of underlying concept of the speech. Was just like you know you got your your family house, your grandparents in Naples. You're gonna go to <laughs> you're gonna go to Cancun for spring break. But you're pr- it's you're like, privilege. It's like everyone here for the most part. You've had a good life, and there's there's just a lot more out there to go see. And so go get outside your comfort zone, you know, because that's where you're gonna grow. In Chicago, where do you go? to get out of your comfort zone in the city. This is kind of a meta response uh-huh. that I'm going to give you back. So I'm very big into like health and, and working out and mm-hmm. things like that. Used to be a huge runner, not as much so anymore, but yep. still very active. In my head is kind of where I go to get lost. So going for like a run along the lake and just kind of like breathing fresh air, mm-hmm. you know, run down to like the harbor and look back at the city and it's like still, it's breathtaking. As I'm running, I'm just like thinking. And that's what kind of like takes me to another place. More just being out there and, and being free. And We've sat here in my basement in Lincoln Park with three, four, five people. And you're the third person that says, I like to get to the lake. I feel like I had a runner here. I had a professional runner. Same thing. There's nothing better than the lake. She, she was like. Three thirty, four in the morning when no one else is out there, whether it's beautiful day or whether it's covered with ice. That's where I like to go run. It mm-hmm. seems like everybody is. I don't know if there's like something to it, but it's like, I feel a connection to the water. So it's like, well, I'm obsessed with waterfalls. Like I like water and yeah. I, I'm like, I don't want to believe that it has anything to do with the fact that I'm a Pisces, but I'm like, I don't know. People do. There is something about being he on feels water connected that, like... to the sea. No, it's it's, <laughs> it's funny. We we lived abroad. My wife and I we lived abroad for a year. And where Germany, uh, Switzerland. We made friends, obviously, and we bring friends over here. They stay with us. I'm like, let's go to the lake, and then we go to the lake, and we we take for granted that it's called the Great Lakes, and they go, that's not a lake, that's an ocean, you know, right? And, and they just stand there mesmerized that we have this. This thing, this big mass of water, this mass, this mass of water that, that goes as far as the eye can see, because they're just used to smaller bodies of water. And if they see something big like that, it's an ocean. And it's funny with this podcast about Chicago and culture, and we talk about a whole bunch of things. Everybody, even actually, actually, everybody said they love going to the lakes. I just find that interesting. So I live in River North, right by the Chicago River, and yep. I love is an understatement. I love what they're doing with down by the water, how they're the continuing walks. the river walk and they're building yeah. that out. 
Because in the summertime when it's nice, my girlfriend and I, like, we go down there yep. and we'll walk from our place along the river to the lake. Yep. And, like, you get all the activity of the things that are going on in the river. And, like, yep. it's such a cool way to experience the city. And I love that we're embracing it. And there's even some cooler things if you kind of look at, like, you know, some some people that are proposing different options of, like, maybe having, like, a a bike path or something like oh down there down there oh wow you know even like a floating bike path basically that could go up and down the river i saw that oh yeah i know i think all the all of our friends that are architects or in that world are kind of geeking out about it because they they're proposing something that they don't have a solution for yeah there's right. just a lot of different ideas being thrown <laughs> a floating out there. bike path <laughs> right <laughs> i won't get into like we're in chicago and, and illinois has all these huge deficits and craziness and, and i'm like we need a bike path. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I, I look bike. at it a little bit differently. Is that yeah. like, these are the things that the people attract talent. Attract talent. Like it's like, yeah. if you want to make it more of a livable city, look at the success of the 606, right. In Bucktown. And yeah. now they're talking about it, you know, coming over to Lincoln park. And it's those yeah. types of yeah. things that is like yeah. a person like myself and you who are getting to that point in their life where it's like, do you stay or do you go? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we're making that move to the burbs where, it's those types of things Based on that what convince I hear, me to you're, stay. You're not going to the burbs, <laughs> uh, especially since right now you don't have any kids that you know of. I'm not going to the burbs because my wife won't allow it. I mean, I, I, we, we love the city. I mean, we, yeah. we are entrenched. We, we have a place that we can stay in for a long time. But you're right. You have an appreciation of privilege. You have an appreciation of kind of what's going on in the overall city. I just I struggle with that whole idea of like we have all of these problems going on mm -hmm. and you know we have this this conversation about river walks and float and it's like man we have a lot of problems yeah no like, there's a which, lot of things to be but you're right it, it attracts people it, can, it continues to attract people and other people when they see that they invest in the city right, right. all these businesses are moving because from the suburbs of those four, four, four things were, four yeah. things like that we don't do rapid fire i'm just gonna just fire out random ass shit you're leaving the states for like six months and you got you want to have a lunch and a dinner or breakfast lunch and dinner where, where, where are you going to have that meal those meals so i am leaving the states for six months <laughs> <laughs> All right. um so hands down my favorite restaurant in chicago is avec avec yeah okay Okay. I got friends. It's funny you mentioned that. I got friends from across the country. I had I literally had one reach out to me today saying I'd like to come crash at your place in a couple months for a weekend because they just found out that they could get there. They they want to come just go, just to go to a vec. Why why a vec? So we are very spoiled in Chicago. Yes, we are. I think. We have we the greatest. Are, we have the greatest weather. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, the food scene here is incredible. I think it's highly underrated. Although it, that's changing, I think now uh, it's coming up big time. And yep. you know, there's definitely some big awards that are being given and whatnot. Yep. If you kind of look at it from an economic standpoint, you know, or standpoint or point of view, uh, again going back to the coasts, it's incredibly expensive to live on the coasts. So if you're an up and coming chef, like you can live comfortably in Chicago and Logan square or now Pilsen's kind of, you know, starting to be a hotbed for and what used to be like, again, even things are changing now. Logan square is now becoming gentrified and expensive and mm, whatnot, yeah. but you can see how it's, it's a very livable city mm -hmm. for these very talented chefs to also then open restaurants. Yep. So anyway, there's just some incredible, incredible talent and, and, and places to eat here. But Avec. Avec for me was the first place that, 
there's a, so there's a little bit of nostalgia here. You know, I think if somebody was today to go there for the first time, they may not feel as strongly. They'd be like, mm-hmm. really? Like there's so many awesome places and that's your number. And so I will say it's, I'm giving it that, that credit for being so good for so long. Yep. Longevity. Longevity. Yeah. Like that is to me, like it's, it's, yeah. er, it's consistent. It's like, it's earned its place. And so I probably went there God, I mean, right when it opened. So it's like 12 years ago. Right. So it's the Tim Duncan of restaurants. It's, it's consistently good for just a consistently long, at a good high point. level. Yeah. And it's got so many things going, which you would think are going against it. And again, at that time were very out there. Like it was communal style seating. Could you imagine going to like a very nice restaurant and having to sit communal style? When you walk in, it looks like a sauna. It's like this long, skinny thing. Mm-hmm. You're sitting next to people you don't know. Yep. The people there are kind of like dressed kind of punk rocker-ish. But the food is incredible. It's reasonably priced. Amazing wine list. It's all these different elements just come together and they work. They don't take reservations. Like there's just things that like you just be like, you want to hate it. But man, they execute it perfectly. And yeah. so, I mean, for 12 years, like it's, you know, hands down, I've never so had a bad meal. So that's dinner. That's right. dinner. So that's dinner. Let's, yeah. Let's lunch. Where you, so, where you going to have that last lunch? So I'm going to stick on the Paul Kahan fan fan bus train. Uh, so that's the, the restaurant group that is mm-hmm. a Vec, Blackbird. Yeah. And then we're about to go is Big Star. So sometimes I think I'm like partly Mexican because I'm so obsessed with. You go to Mexico a lot too. I yep. do go. To, I spend quite a bit of time in Mexico. Yep. That has nothing to do with it. I don't think. No, uh, all right. Okay. I was trying to um, give you credit. Like, he's like, oh, you know, he knows the food. He knows the culture. He's like, no, they have um, damn good margaritas there. Yeah, I just love their. I love everything about. It. Again, just there, there's a lot of elements that just don't make it yeah. a typical kind of taco yeah. joint. Yeah, but, you said Big I mean, Star, right? Big Star. Big Star is not paying us for advertising or promotion or but anything. They are welcome to pay us in tacos. They, they are. They are welcome to pay us in tacos, and I eat Big Star. At least once a week. Cause, cause no, because they're, they're at the Bull Stadium. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They that's a, right. That's right. They are at the Bull um, Stadium now. Oh, I love that place. So that's a good that's a good one-two punch, in my opinion, for lunch dinner. Oh, the, and their, uh, the drink I drink is uh, La Paloma with the Al Pastor tacos. Oh, man. Speaking my language, brother. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Breakfast, underrated meal in Chicago, because Chicago is coming up with, you know, brunch. And I was late to the brunch game, but now I'm a big brunch fan. So where are you going for breakfast? My house. Your house? Like your house house? Brunch is He's my... saying he makes a good brunch. You make a, Okay, so all these places we have out here, you're telling me... His skillet trumps them all. So I, again, not only love eating and enjoy the culinary arts, but I enjoy creating them myself. Uh, huge cook. By far, it's my... When I'm the happiest, I'll say, is when I'm cooking. Right, right. Uh, hosting Thanksgiving this week. So brunch is, uh, for a while now, it's been kind of my thing to do for friends and whatnot to come over. And yeah. I think uh, we kind of learned early on. When I first brought my first place, um, had a, we had a great kitchen. And I was like, I'm going to cook dinner for all my friends. And just realized how hard that was to do during the week because mm-hmm. everybody's busy and traveling and whatnot. So then it was like, well, brunch. It's like, nobody's got shit to do after. You kind of come over casually. Come over your PJs if you want cook up a bunch of food, drink some mimosas and Bloody Marys or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, that's it. And it's done. Sometimes it's like, we're doing a dance party till 10 o'clock at night. You never know. And so from brunch. Um, yeah. Brunch is also fun. Cause you can hit a sweet spot between like 
that morning nutrition you need, but also a good amount of of comfort food yeah. with it as and well. Sweet it's a nice, and savory, yeah. you know, a nice combination of the two. So, and in Chicago, any excuse to day drink is a good excuse. <laughs> Again, I never got that brunch memo from either of you. Uh, and <laughs> you both like you, to cook. Legit, half of the concert venues that I'm always shooting at do brunches the next day on on Sunday. Oh, and yeah, typically what they'll do is they'll do like, depending on where you're at, they, they do different things for whether it's buffets or whether they do a brunch special. But half of it is like, okay, it kind of follows the motif of we know you guys were here until 2 a.m. last night. Come back with 20 bucks in the morning. We got you for food, for great food. We've got you for the drinks. And then they'll also on most Sundays in the football season, they'll, they'll put on the game as well. So Man, you speak your language. venue is your home. I, honestly, I used to I used to sleep on breakfast, like literally sleep on it, I'm like whatever. And now, Saturday and Sunday, we brunch. Yeah, like my whole family, like my daughter, we just we've got a great one right here. Toast. Yeah, I know toast. Yeah, we do uh, toast. We do shubas. Shubas has a yeah. great they have like kind of musical brunch, and we do that. Oh yeah, brunch is awesome. If I had to pick, a, if I do have to give you a, a Longman and Eagle has an uh, amazing Logan Square. Yeah, it's an amazing brunch. All right, so you pick a neighborhood. What's your go-to spot in the city, neighborhood-wise? Neighborhood-wise, yeah. I, I think I live in it, River North. Really? Why? Why is that? Because I, I know River North is really hot right now, but why do you think that's your go-to spot besides you living there? So I think you have such great proximity to all these awesome spots in the city. So yep. Fulton West Loop area is, is great right now. There's just a ton of activity going on there. You can walk there in 10 minutes from, from River North. Mm-hmm. Talked earlier about wanting to walk along the river that's in the heart of River North. Yep. The restaurants, I think, are incredible. It's also like super hot nightlife. I don't know. Just got to give a shout out to like, that's where I live. And so I think I just got to kind of give a shout out to you know, right. where I make my bed. cool. Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah and Hank. Intro. Mixing, editing, it's done by Alyssa Moxley. Produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls, and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com. D E E P E R D I S H C H I at gmail.com. Or on Twitter. Our handle is at Deeper Dish Shy. Our website is www.deeperdishshy.com.